Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, Ezra 4, pursuing God. Today, we're going to talk about the reality of opposition. The reality of opposition. I'm going to begin by going to Ezra chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first six verses to kind of set the stage for us, and then we'll come back and continue with the message. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezra Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Well, as we've looked at the exiles who were in Babylon returning now to Judah and to rebuild the altar and the temple and the wall in the city of Jerusalem, we see that this group of people, the first wave, if you will, has returned. They, get, they began to get settled in their lives. And, and in chapter 3, we saw where they reestablished their life uh, centered on worship. So that, that was the way that they lived uh, in honoring God as a people, and they reinstalled the centrality of worship to their lives. And here at the end of chapter 3, we see that they, they saw the foundation had been laid, but the temple had not yet been built. And we heard that the younger generation was just shouting with this exuberance of all that had been accomplished. And the older generation, they were happy, but they were grieved because the glory of the former temple was so much greater than what they were looking at in that moment. But even though there was a spectrum of response, Ezra tells us that their voices were together and rose as one testimony to all the people around in the land. And it was a testimony to God and what he was doing among them. And so with their lives centered in worship, the mission advanced and the work on the temple began. And just as momentum builds, opposition arises. This is the way it happens every time, is it not? Every time a person comes to faith in Christ with joy and excitement and it's so encouraging to watch that happen and then it's not long before Satan doesn't let that lie but he brings attacks, he brings the reality of this world and of sin and of life to bear upon them and you see opposition arise and them learn to confront that opposition by their faith in Christ. A church celebrates a big accomplishment or an achievement. 
And, and there's kind of this moment of, of relief and, and then Satan begins to work in and opposition in some form arises. Sometimes the challenge of opposition arises from the outside and sometimes it arises from within. But there seems to be this inherent presumed expectation that we just kind of live with that when things are done right, there won't be any opposition. Conflict won't emerge. Am I right about that? Do you, do you see that? Like, it just seems like there, you can be lulled into a moment that when everything's going right, you all automatically presume that nothing could go wrong. So if something does go wrong, or if something in opposition or conflict arises, then inherently it must mean something is wrong. And what we see here is nothing could be further from the truth. They were obeying God at the end of chapter 3. They were together around the throne on mission with God doing what God had brought them there to do. And that's when opposition arose. You see, when everything is right, opposition still looms. And when opposition is absent, that doesn't mean everything is always and only right. James reminds us in his letter, maturity happens in the hard times, not the high times, as we persevere through the trials and challenges of life. And the challenge is not about whether opposition will arise, but will we hold to the one who will hold us fast through it? You see, friends, opposition is never automatic evidence of wrong, whether in an individual action or an overall direction. But rather, it is the reality of Satan. It is the reality of sin's presence and prevailing influence in the world. But as we look at the reality of opposition today, I want us to see that Jesus proves worthy of any sacrifice and that his authority is greater to hold us fast in his mission. Now listen, I'm going to use a word with a dual meaning today, okay? I want to explain this to you. Typically, when we use the word mission, we're speaking explicitly of a work that we kind of do together in serving the Lord. But when I'm talking about mission today, surely I'm including that. But individually, you could apply that word to understand simply obeying God in your life as the personal mission, if you will, that he has given to us, each of us as Christians who follow him by faith. So what do you do when opposition arises? How do you prepare for it? How do you address it? These are the things we're going to look at today. And, and these are questions, and, and even more, that immediately arise at the consideration of opposition. And I want us to see today, when opposition arises, it gives us an opportunity to see the worthiness and the greater authority of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at three tests that prove Jesus is worthy and prove he is greater. And with each of the three tests, I'm going to offer you a question that helps you to endure or persevere in that test. Now the first test, I just want to prepare you. The first test is, is a, a test that really leads us and prepares us for the remainder of the chapter. So we'll spend a little more time on this test than we will the second and the third. But when we come to verse 1 through 6, the first test that we see that comes when opposition arises is what I call the test of discernment. The test of discernment. You see, the people who came to visit seemed to be so eager to help originally. 
They said, hey, we're here. We're going to help you with the building. And Zerubbabel and Ezra and the other leaders said, no, I don't think so. You're not going to do it. As a matter of fact, in verse 1, Ezra identifies the people as adversaries. Now, surely it's after the fact, and he's writing to record. But if he's writing to teach us what took place, he wouldn't inherently identify them as adversaries from the very beginning. But we are led to understand that that's how they perceived them from the very beginning. They discerned that they were adversaries. And surely we know that more was taking place than only seems by the answers. And and we shouldn't be speculating about everything that's not in the text that was probably going on, things going on behind the curtains and things that people felt and responses and all of those kinds of things. Here's what we do know. Israel was doing the right thing. They were obeying God and serving his mission. But serving the mission did not mean opposition would not arise. You see, opposition is inevitable. But it's not always obvious, and it's seldom conclusive. And in these moments, discernment becomes an essential focus when opposition arises. Now, let me just briefly speak to where it is that adversaries come from. Adversaries are those who bring the opposition, who bring the conflict. And they come from a number of places. Number one, the the great adversary is Satan himself. That's what scripture tells us because as we'll learn today, adversaries are accusers. And that's actually a capital A title for Satan himself in the scripture. He is the accuser. And so when adversaries come, they bring accusation. He, the evil one, Satan himself, is the great adversary. And he works his ways through many other sources. A second place that adversaries come through is worldly influence. Worldly influence. Things such as prevailing ideologies, worldly philosophies, and even circumstances can bring these. And, and, And when adversaries come through worldly influence, as we see here, they seldom arrive honestly. As a matter of fact, there's usually Uh, shall we say, a manipulative front that they put forth, a niceness, just like these did. Hey, we're here to help. I don't think so. That's the sniff test if you're new to life point. That's the first step of discernment. Not from the Bible's perspective, just trying to relate it to you, okay? And then the third place that adversaries often come from is our sin nature and sin's influence. Since habits that we've gotten ourselves into that become an adversary for us as well. And here, more on a personal level, but it can be corporate as well. It can, in, uh, it can influence and affect an entire group of people. You see, regardless of where opposition arises, what is most important to discern is whether it is attempting or threatening to stop you from obeying the clear command of God. So that's the dividing line right there by which you discern. Is this influence threatening or attempting to stop us from obeying the clear command of God? Now, when an adversary comes, there are four common characteristics that we can point out from this passage of Scripture. The first characteristic of an adversary is this. They bear a false testimony about true worship of God. They bear a false testimony about the true worship of God. It may seem odd for them to refuse the help of these people, but you need to understand who these people were and why they were identified as adversaries. 
let me back up a little bit to kind of the background of what's transpiring in these chapters. As we talked about, when Jerusalem was overthrown by the Babylonian Empire, their foreign policy was to take the conquered people and to send them to different areas of the empire. Now, they only took the influential people, the wealthy people, the, the highest of the artisans and the craftsmen and the, the, the thinkers and the politicians, those who were most influential in that area were taken away into exile and there would be a great number of them because the ideology of the Babylonians was that if they could spread the leaders, then they couldn't unite to rebel against them. So, it, you know, if you got left, it kind of said something about you, right? I don't want to go into exile, but don't you want me? I want to be picked, right? I mean, we all want to be chosen, right? You don't want to be the last person out there and have the two teams going, I don't know. I don't want him. You can have him. I'm not taking him. You take him, you know? I mean, I don't know if you pick teams that way anymore or not, but we used to. That's kind of what it was saying about these people. And then in the midst of it, it tells us that, that in Babylonian captivity, one of the things that, that they did was they sent some priests back to teach the law of God. Now imagine what kind of compliment that is of you. You know, you're harmless. Why don't you go back and, and you can take care of this, right? I mean, so the people that came back, they appeal to and appear as one thing when in fact they were likely not true worshipers of God at all. In other words, they were priests who went back to keep the people happy. They were on the government's payroll and their job was to make sure everybody stayed happy and nobody got too upset or too loud. They would perform whatever task needed to be performed religiously just so the people wouldn't revolt and rise up. And for them, the law and the religion of the Israelites was one of many, not the one among all others. And so, friends, here's what we see. They, bear, they bore a false testimony about the true worship of God because the truth of their claim did not match, match the reality of their actions. The way that they had lived didn't match the proposition that they made when they came and offered help. This is the common characteristic of bearing a false testimony. Friends, listen, in our day and time, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're a Christian, just because God or the word Jesus is in someone's vocabulary, don't presume they're using the same dictionary. I know what you think. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it flies like a duck and it swims like a duck, it must be a duck. Not necessarily. They bore a false testimony about the true worship of God. The second common characteristic is they worked to discourage the work of God. They were working to discourage the work of God. They were more interested and became more interested. Look at verse 4. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They were more interested in casting speculation, casting question, and casting doubt to raise fears. 
So regardless of whether they were invited or not, many of them walked through the Israelites as they're doing the work and they would begin to go, dude, are you gonna do that that way? <laughs> you know that's not gonna last. Or begin to ask questions. Where'd you get that? That's an inferior product or that's an inferior process, whatever the case may be. But they actively worked, it tells us, to discourage the work of God. You see, an adversary attacks God's work by threatening the heart of God's worker. The third common characteristic is that they, when their, their initial tactics didn't work, look at verse 5. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. To frustrate their purpose. They, they, they resourced false witnesses and fabricated false reports in order to frustrate the work. When the individual attack was not sufficient, then they brought a larger scale of attack and they began to pay off people who would come in as professionals and tell them things to continue and to raise the heat on the discouragement of God's people. And the fourth common characteristic we also see that they would accuse the motivations of those who are doing the work. Now, we're going to see this as we move into verse 6 and verse 7. Look at verse 6. They wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. At its core, the opposition always arises because the adversary is bringing an accusation. An accusation. So they accuse the motivations of those who are doing the work. Accusations hold an interesting effect, do they not? Because they simultaneously seek to create false, accus uh, false speculation in the mind of others about the ones they're writing of, while they cause or seek to cause uncertainty in the heart and the mind of the accused. And so here's what we see. They've been poking at their heart, trying to weaken the courage or the strength of their heart and their motivation in the work. And then they began to do a larger scale. And now what they are trying to do is not only continue to discourage the work by frustrating the people in their own hearts and their motivation and their reason and purpose for doing the work, but now they're appealing to the world powers to speculate about why it is they're doing the work. They tried to destroy their reputation and they tried to destroy their strength of character. That's what verse 6 is all about. That's what accusations try to do. And this is why it is so important that our hearts and minds are anchored by the truth of God. Because when the storm of accusation comes, not only will there be those who oppose you for reasons they may or may not understand, but you'll even begin to question yourself. And you need a greater anchor than your memory. You need a better anchor than your perception or your understanding. You need something that is greater than you to stand so that you can endure the storm of accusation. The only real victory against accusation is the victory that comes through endurance to outlast the false claim. You see, in all things, adversaries never seek resolution, just destruction of those who are in their path. And adversaries must be discerned because they make you think they're advocates, and they're not. And when you learn to discern them, then you can properly relate to them. And once you can properly relate to them, that can determine how it is you allow them to influence you. Because if you don't discern, you will give too much access and you will give too much influence 
over you. See, I think this is two common mistakes that are typically made, especially by Christians, with adversarial influences in their life. Number one, the, uh, the adversaries get accepted without discernment. And usually it's because they bring such a strong niceness to lead with. Hey, we're here to help you. Well, come on, grab a shovel and let's go, you know. There's been no discernment. And second of all, adversaries are granted equal influence with every other voice. And so when you allow the wrong voices too great of an influence in your life, that automatically diminishes the influence of the right voices with too little influence. And obedience to God begins to get frustrated and drained. And listen to me, friends. Spiritual maturity never tolerates spiritual drain. As you're growing in your faith in Christ, and you go, I don't really consider myself spiritually mature anyway. Well, that's where we're all headed, to be like Jesus. And as we become more like Christ, spiritual maturity does not tolerate things that become spiritual drain, but rather seeks to discern so that we can address the drain, replace it with the filling of Christ, of his joy, his goodness, and his grace, and continue in obedience and mission to him. Listen to me. Opposition should not surprise us. Accusation should not surprise us. It is the way Satan has always worked. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 reminds us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be shocked. What's he telling us? He's going, be prepared. Be prepared. Don't be shocked as though something strange were happening to you. We understand because of the prince of darkness in this world, he does not threaten Jesus' sovereignty, but he will continue to attack it as long as he has opportunity. And so the Christian life is a life of discernment. Discernment by a renewed mind. This is what Romans 12 teaches to be no longer conformed to the patterns of this world. That's what sin, that's what sinful influence, and that's what Satan are about, completely conforming your life to death and destruction. But Jesus Christ renews us, and that's how he transforms us, by renewing our mind, and our minds are renewed by his truth. And as he renews our mind, we discern what is right, what is good, and what is holy. That's why he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you will be able to. There's no no ifs, ands, or buts. The truth of God gives us the mind of Christ that we might discern what is not of him and what is. So that we can discern the will of God. Three areas of biblical discernment that we need to highlight today in understanding this test of discernment. First of all, 1 John 4, 1 teaches that we should discern the spirit to determine to whom it is testifying. Discern the spirit. 1 John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Listen, friends, I say this out of love, but you need to understand it is sinful for a Christian to be naive and gullible about spiritual matters because of laziness, because of neglect. It is sinfulness on our part. Because God is not absent of it, he's not insufficient with it, and he's not dormant in the face of it. 
All things that come from God, it doesn't matter where they appeared to come from. If they are from the hands of God, they culminate in a faithful testimony to Jesus Christ. They culminate in a faithful testimony to who he was. He is God and he became man. He's the living word and he took on flesh and he inhabited himself among us. He walked among us. He was God 100%. He was man 100%. Many religions will talk about him being a faithful prophet from God, but they will not acknowledge him being man. Many will say he was one of the greatest dudes you've ever met, but that didn't make him God. And the scriptures teach us to discern these things. The scriptures teach us not only to discern who he is, but what he taught and what he accomplished with his life. Listen, if there is a spirit of accusation that comes against you and it will not acknowledge or boldface denies that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the substitutionary atonement of God in our place for our sin, it is not from God and it will not help you get to God. You cannot deny Christ. You cannot take part of Christ and believe that you get all of God. And anyone that will not acknowledge that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and he is enthroned at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns with all sovereignty today and his authority is unquestioned, that is not a spirit from God. It will not get you to God. You should cut it off. That's what discern means. Jesus is, hear me, with the greatest exclusivity I can tell you. He is the one. He is never one among many. And if any other seek to put their authority, their truth, their writings, their traditions next to him, get rid of them. Have nothing to do with them. The second test of discernment is discern the fruit. Discern the fruit to reveal what the influence of the accusation or the adversary produces or represents as its root or as its source. Think about this. Here, they didn't want them to rebuild the temple. Why? Because they already had a religious plan in place, but it wasn't God's plan. So when you discern the fruit, you are trying to discern that you can reveal what it is that this pattern or this idea produces. And if you reveal that, you will find the root or the source from which it flows. Jesus teaches this, and he tells us that false prophets have gone out into the world. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. And he says, the way that you identify them is by their fruit, what they produce with their lives. Look at their lives. You can listen to their words and hear them speaking, but look beyond their words and look at their lives, what they have produced. Verse 16, he tells us this, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits, in case you didn't get it in verse 16 the first time. Paul teaches the same principle. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. He says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and is right and is true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You see, we don't take anything at face value. We want the core. Because God doesn't 
tell us that we just have to blindly trust us. He has revealed the very core of who he is, and that is the standard by which we should measure and discern all things in life. If a person's life, if someone who is purporting an adversarial role or even an ideology you are unsure about or a philosophy that seems counter and and you begin to think, I'm not sure how this aligns with God's word. If that life is not lived in accordance with God's word, their words will never produce godliness either. That's why the people who preach the word of God to you are qualified not by skill, not by gifting, not by intellect, and not by education, but by character. Doesn't make anyone perfect, but it says there are more important factors than the first impression. And if you just give yourself to first impressions, you are tossed and turned by the storms of life that control you instead of looking at the very heart of the matter. The third test is the, to discern the trajectory. The trajectory. You could also call it the discernment of influence, but the trajectory is what I call uh, to understand the influence of their direction, their path, or their purpose. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that Christians do not walk according to the flesh. Christians walk according to the Spirit, capital S, God's Spirit that is within us. Because when our mind is set on the flesh, and that word for flesh in Romans chapter 8 is a comprehensive recognition of and reference to sin's culminating influence in a sinful life. And ultimately the habits of that life and the influence of the world around it. But he says, Christians do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then in verses 5 through 11, he goes on to say, the mind that is set on the flesh is going to accomplish the things that the flesh wants to accomplish, and that will always lead you away from God. But the mind that is set on the Spirit is dialed in and focused on the things that God's Spirit wants to accomplish in you. And that's who you're going to follow. He's telling us that the way we live demonstrates what or who is living in us. And so this test of trajectory considers the direction that the accusation or the adversary is headed. It considers the path that they have followed and how it is that they have traveled that path in order to identify what is influencing them. You've got to ask, how is this affecting me? How is this relationship or how is this uh, uh, ideology or, or, or this philosophy that I'm espousing or this practice that I'm engaging in, how is it affecting me? Is it cultivating a greater love for Jesus? Am, am I growing in my knowledge of who he is and how he's loved me so that it's producing something in me where I have a, a deepening love for Jesus? Or is it telling me, you know, you got time to do that the rest of your life. Why don't you go do something else right now and you can get to that later? And later is always a time that in your heart of hearts you know is never going to happen. You've got to ask, what is this producing in me? Are the fruits of the Spirit more an, an honest recognition of what's taking place in me? Or are they becoming a more vague, distant reality about me? Where is this leading me? You see, all of life, friends, should be used by the Spirit 
to produce Christ-likeness in us. Do you realize, Christian, that there isn't an instant, there isn't an occurrence, there isn't a single idea that crosses your mind or crosses the path of your life that God has not promised to bring good for you and glory to him through. And if it's not producing that, it's not from him, it's not going to get you to him. All of life should be used by the Spirit of God to produce Christ-like in us or we should not allow it to remain. The question of test one is this. Who will you seek and listen to when opposition creates confusion and chaos? Let me tell you, the first place you turn will always reveal the greatest hope you're holding in your heart. And so often that's a grievous moment because we turn not to God, not to his word, but we turn to the people of the world We turn to our bank accounts. We turn to our own efforts. We turn to our jobs. We turn wherever else, but we forsake to look to the Lord first and to listen to him. And you say, well, am I a bad person because of that? It's not about whether you're a bad person, friends. It's about whether you'll recognize that and repent and turn to the Lord. Adversaries, it's important to understand It's not about the people, friends. They often come through people, though. Because our battle's not against flesh and blood. Our battle's in the spiritual realm against principalities and powers that are not just threatening us. They don't give one wit about us, but they are trying to dethrone Jesus Christ. And when he is Lord of your life, they're willing to take you out in order to do it. You see, the truth of God in Jesus Christ becomes for us a sword to discern his will by his truth and his wisdom that is given to us. And so as we practice this test of discernment, discerning the spirit, discerning the fruit, discerning the influence or the trajectory of its purpose and its pattern in our life, when we discern the adversary in opposition, it will seldom be the final confrontation that we'll have for them. And that brings us to the second test today. You see, when the people of the land couldn't stop God's people from doing what God had commanded them to do, they didn't go, well, we lose, let's just walk away. No, they turned up the heat. They walked away and came back with a better idea. Here's what they said, look at verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, And he begins to tell us about a letter that they wrote. First of all, they didn't just dive right in and go, you're not going to believe what's going in. First of all, they laid it on thick. You, you've done so much for us. You've you've helped us. You've you've paid for this. You've done that. Our life is so good under your leadership. And and listen, we're just worried about you. We, We want to make sure that we're being faithful to you. So we need you to know about these rebellious people. And here's what they did. They referred historically to a time before the Babylonian captivity and said that's why they had to be overthrown in the beginning. They were rebellious people. And you see, when initial tactics don't work, they just turn up the heat. And when they couldn't stop the Israelites from working, they went over their head to cut off the supply chain, if you will, and to create problems on a larger scale. And in keeping with their behavior, their letter became full of accusations and assertions. But this time, it wasn't just about the people of Israel who had returned. This time, they knew that their tactic would be towards Artaxerxes to challenge his throne so he would be forced to react. And that's exactly what happened. They said, you know, if you don't do something about these people, your glory is going to be tarnished. 
If you don't do something about these people, it's your kingdom that's going to be threatened. And their main assertion made the reference with the initial conflict prior to Jerusalem's destruction. This is what they said. If you will look in the history books, Artaxerxes, you will find in this period of time that they were a rebellious people and that's why Babylon chose to overthrow them in the beginning. And you know what? That's true. That's true, partially. You might call it a half-truth. You know what a half-truth is? It's a whole lie. The king responds out of fear and he makes them stop working until the accusations can be investigated. Verse 22 tells us. This brings us to the second test. It is the test of endurance or the test of perseverance. You see, opposition usually intensifies before it goes away, and it often creates obstacles because of it that seem insurmountable. They were ready to use, listen to me, a portion of truth from the past to condemn and threaten their future. Let me tell you, that is always Satan's principal leading tactic for you. He'll take a little bit of what he knows about you and what he's seen in you, and he'll make you think that's the whole of who you are. You'll be doing great with God. You'll be growing in your relationship and your knowledge of God. Satan will bring something up from 30 years ago that you haven't thought about in 25 years. And all of a sudden, he'll make you think your whole life is defined by that instant. He keeps it in his arsenal so he can fire those flaming darts whenever he chooses. And you know what? He's really, really good at it. But he's not as good as God is in defending against it. Opposition that's hard and relentless takes a a heavy toll on the heart. And there were signs in here that Israel was fracturing. Some of the people were stopping the work already. They were walking away going, this is just too much. I I can't handle this. I've got to go find something else. But friends, when the opposition is intensified, it's like heat from the oven. It'll either bake you or burn you. And by baking, I, I simply mean mature, bring about the things that God wants for you, like pressure and heat on coal. If you get out too early, the diamond won't be there. And what happens in the midst of the intensified opposition will be determined by how you manage the heat. If you're looking to get out, you will. You will. If you're looking to trust Christ, He will always provide a way so you can be delivered. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can run up under it. Bridge is the word there in the Greek for way out. He will provide a covering for you to be protected from sin's temptation. And you might argue, but pastor, isn't 1 Corinthians 10, isn't that a verse talking about sinful temptation? Yes, it is. Then why do you bring it up when you're talking about the heat of conflict and the heat of opposition? Because let me tell you when temptation is strongest, when life is hardest. When you feel the weight of life, Temptation will offer itself in pleasurable 
pleasurable ways, promising ways that you've never understood or even conceived before. But all of a sudden, it will come to you. And it may be an instant from your past. It may be a season in your past. But all of a sudden, Satan will present it to you in such a way that makes you think, you know, that wasn't that bad. Maybe it's worth it again. And what, what he's teaching us here is that no matter what the temptation is, God will provide a way out. See, I mentioned temptation because sin always offers an easier way out of obeying God. That's all sin is. But it just never works. That's the problem. It seems more desirable, but it is not. God always gives a way out from sin's temptation. But when facing opposition, his plan is usually not a way out, but a way through. A way through. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, the question of test number two is this. Will I trust Jesus to lead me, even when the circumstances seem to be betraying me? Will I trust the Lord knowing he will hold me fast? Or will I try to find my own way and go that way? Friends, Christians look to the Lord. We listen to his word because that's the only way his will will be done. And a test of endurance, even from opposition, is always an opportunity for Christ's likeness to be made more in you and for the glory of God to be revealed more to you. We know there is nothing that is beyond Jesus' authority in this world. All authority has been given to me on heaven and in earth, Jesus says in Matthew 28. Therefore, we fight to kill temptation. We refuse to cave to feelings. We seek the wisdom of Jesus' word and the counsel of the Holy Spirit as our trust so that we can obey. We look to other Christians in community who will encourage us and even give us direction in those moments. You see, the test of endurance reminds us when we look to Jesus in the face of opposition, he accomplishes his will in us as we serve his mission that he has given to us. And that's what they find here. But when the king's letter comes back, the king was overwhelmed. He was threatened. And so he said, let's shut it down until we can figure out what's going on. And so when the king's letter returned, the adversary uses it as a heavy hand against the Israelites. Look all the way at the end of the chapter, verse 23. When the copy was read, then it said at the second part of verse 23, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. And then the work on the house of the God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Ezra records a very dark moment in history when it says that the work on the house of God stopped. Some of the most sobering and hard words that we read in all of Scripture. But it introduces us to test number three, the test of faithfulness. You see, opposition creates hard situations that bring us face to faith with very hard questions questions that we have to ask ourselves what do I do when things don't go as I planned 
What do I do when things don't go as I thought they would, as I wanted them to, or in ways that I can control and continue on? What do I do in those moments? Where do I turn when following God becomes less than desirable? How you answer will be determined by how you've prepared to look to Jesus and to trust in Him. Friends, you may feel overwhelmed by the opposition, but you need to remember this, that in Christ, overwhelmed is not the same as overcome. The darkness of Ezra 4.24 reminds us of another dark day in history that seemed overwhelming. The night Jesus was crucified. Hope was lost. You say, why was hope lost? Didn't they know? Not from their perspective. They had not seen things as they are. They had only seen them as they could see them. You see, the question of test number three is this. Will I rest in the finished work of Christ to remain faithful? Or will I try to make my own way? You see, we have seen the day that follows the dark night. All hope seemed lost when Christ was crucified. It appeared the opposition had won. The crowds came, they took him by force, they brutally beat him, they mocked and cursed him, and then they crucified him in front of all. They took him down off the cross and they put him in the tomb and they thought they could wipe the blood of Christ off of their hands. But they didn't. Because three days later he rose from the grave. You see, we understand because the grave didn't hold Jesus, there won't ever be anything that can And we know that darkness does not get the last word. What seemed overwhelming in a moment was overcome by the one who was raised from the dead. And we know that since God raised Jesus, he will raise us too. God specializes in resurrection, friends, of making dead things alive, of making a way where there is no other way. You see, in Jesus Christ, friends, there is no hopeless situation. And when you trust to obey God, you will always experience Him in greater ways as He proves Himself greater in power and greater in glory than any opposition. Did you know that every person in Scripture who ever faced opposition experienced greater grace to overcome when they trusted God and continued to believe in Him? Every one. Every time. You will not be the exception. God will be faithful to you because God is faithful. Jesus Christ proves worthy of any sacrifice and his authority greater to hold us fast in his mission. Let's go before the Lord.